0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Slowly but surely, they are counting ballots in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District to determine if Lauren Boebert keeps her job or is ousted by a Democrat who's outperformed most everyone's expectations. We get the latest on the count in Pueblo. Then, the winner in Colorado's newest district, Congresswoman-elect Dr. Yadira Caravale.
1: That's exactly why I ran for this 8th district, to make sure that I could represent those kids and those families that I saw in clinic every day.
0: Also, on this Veterans Day, we remember the soldiers who trained at Camp Hale in Leadville, now a national monument. These troops fought in Europe's toughest mountain terrain.
2: We hoped, in many ways, just to prove ourselves, which I think eventually we did.
0: But at a steep price.
3: What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The entire country is watching as they count votes in Colorado's third congressional race. Right now, Republican incumbent Lauren Boebert is 1,100 votes ahead of Democrat Adam Frisch. That it's this close is remarkable, as drawn, the district favors Republicans big time. Boebert has national name recognition, but after just one term, many have soured on her. So, as we head into the weekend, where do things stand? Anna Lynn Winfrey is politics reporter at the Pueblo Chieftain. She's been watching this all week, getting very little sleep. And welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Any idea when we'll have a result?
4: So next week on Friday is the final deadline for county clerks to report results. They're still waiting on ballots to cure from signature verification and for military and overseas voters to come in. Their deadline is Wednesday, but um, we can't expect results from a lot of clerks, um, including Pueblo, until Thursday or Friday from these extra ballots that are trickling in.
0: All right. I apologize for the quality of the connection, but uh, there are votes remaining, I hear you saying. And then we know that it is Veterans Day. So is there counting going on? Can you speak at least for Pueblo?
4: No. So they wrapped up most of the counting last night at around nine o'clock. Um, And the clerk, Boer T said that they're not going to report any new results until Thursday or Friday.
0: Of next week.
4: Of next week, yes.
0: My goodness. So it's going to be a bit.
4: A little bit. I think just throughout this entire process, we have to remember that there's a lot of checks and balances in the election counting process. And we have to be patient. It doesn't take 15 minutes to count votes for um, an election.
0: Yeah, you've been urging patience all along as I followed you on Twitter this week. Uh, Okay, uh, uh, the votes that remain, what can we say about them? Were they mostly cast on Election Day? Do we have some sense that the later the votes counted might skew Republican because those voters have tended to be warier of mail-in? I know you mentioned uh, overseas ballots, but can you speak at all to the vote that remains?
4: Yeah, so most of the ballots indeed have already been counted, and you're right. A lot of the ballots that were cast in person and that were returned ele- on Election Day, they did tend to skew more Republican because of some rhetoric encouraging folks not to to give them until the last minute, um, but the votes that still remain to be counted, at least in Pueblo County, are just military and overseas ballots, and then... Um, At least a couple hundred ballots that are in the signature cure verification process where uh, bipartisan election judges rejected the signature on the ballot with the match in the state databases. So um, voters have until Wednesday of next week to correct that.
0: And I imagine there's there's a frantic uh, bit of outreach so that those voters get to their ballots, right?
4: Exactly. And um, I've been seeing some folks supporting Adam Frisch on Twitter, holding out hope for that. But we have to remember that there's also folks on the Republican side. Everybody's going to be pushing for these ballots to be um, properly verified so that they, they can be officially counted.
0: I'll just say that a recount is triggered in Colorado when a race is within half a percent. Uh, Boebert's current lead is outside of that at the moment. Um, Once again, acknowledging the rather poor connection we have, but uh, I'm speaking with Anna Lynn Winfrey, politics reporter at the Pueblo Chieftain, who has been tracking the vote count in Colorado's third congressional district. You wrote a piece that published this morning that talks about uh, voter enthusiasm, and it seems that Republican turnout in Pueblo County was stronger than Democratic turnout. Do I frame that properly?
4: It appears to be at at the moment. I mean, um, we still need to double check all the data as soon as all that's finalized. But um, yeah, I mean, especially when you look at the data for in-person ballots, Republicans uh, constituted 38 percent of those, but they are only 24 percent of the uh, active registered voters in Pueblo.
0: Okay. But that's the election day votes. Uh, and and mm-hmm. we've, we've already explained why that might skew more Republican. Okay. That's great context. Can you um, describe for us what you've been witnessing this week? Like how painstaking is the process? What does it look like and feel like?
4: So it was kind of amazing to be inside election headquarters for so much this week because uh, machines can do a lot of the work of processing ballots, but it takes a lot of human hands to make ballots ready for the uh, for voting machines to count them. And even then, there's sometimes humans who need to double-check uh, voter intent on ballots if it's unclear uh, to the machine. So I saw uh, dozens of bipartisan election judges. They're often retirees, and they come from different political parties. But when you put them in a room together and they're doing uh, kind of repetitive work for hours, opening ballots, double checking signatures, stuff like that. They they start to chat a little bit, and um, you can see how they they start to connect over the human things in life. They don't. They may have different political beliefs, but they're not they're not arguing. It's very amicable. They're talking about their children. They're talking about the best place in town to get a margarita. It's very wholesome to watch that.
0: Oh, yeah, it. I think it must imbue with a, a bit of hope um, because i was I was curious whether there was tension among you know, those volunteers, those judges. but it sounds like uh, as you say, it's an amicable relationship. Well, Annalyn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, it sounds like a result may be a slow incoming, coming uh, but that is also the nature of of careful democracy. That's Annalyn Winfrey, politics reporter at the Pueblo Chieftain, tracking the vote count in Colorado's third congressional district. The race between incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert and Democrat Adam Frisch is still too close to call as we sit here this morning. Again, Lauren Boebert now 1,100 votes ahead of Frisch. We'll be right back with the winner in Colorado's brand new district, the 8th. That is Democrat Dr. Yadira Caraveo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: I don't speak Spanish when I go um, to the Pandaria to get snacks. They speak
6: to me in, in Spanish. In the
4: first season of Quien Are We, you heard from a whole lot of people about their passions, relationships. I was so happy. I was so impressed with you. And, you and maybe you heard yourself in their stories.
7: And then I'm not even going to lie to you. One time, and Sam were like, "Was you know, let's break out the web or Let's Maybe somebody gave him evil eye."
4: So... The first season of Quien Are We, everywhere you listen.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to stick with the U.S. House now, where Colorado will send its first Latina representative. Democrat Dr. Yadira Caraveo won a tight race in Colorado's new 8th Congressional District. The pediatrician will represent communities including Thornton, Brighton, Greeley, Johnstown, and Congresswoman-elect. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much. Good morning.
0: You're no stranger to legislating, having served in the state legislature for four years. So tell me how you digest everything you heard on the campaign trail, right? The issues, people's problems, people's requests of you. How do you synthesize all of that and bring it to Washington?
1: Uh, You know, I think luckily I have the skill set of synthesizing a lot of information and a lot of personal uh, history um, as a doctor. Um, And so, um, you know, that skill set has, I think, uh, translated over quite well to campaigning uh, and to legislating. And I think um, it will continue in Congress. Uh, So much of what we do as doctors is take in people's history um, and then go from from there to a diagnosis and treatment. Um, I think that that's actually going to be um, very helpful in, in Congress.
0: You've essentially Uh, interviewed a patient um, in the 8th Congressional District. You've taken the vitals, and now you'll take that to Washington. Um, I want to note that there's a decent chance that as a Democrat, you will be in the minority in the House. That is not an experience you've had in the state legislature to this point. Um, How can you be effective in that environment?
1: You know, I think I'm going to continue what I've done here, even with being in the majority. um, I made sure to forge relationships with uh, my colleagues across the aisle uh, to take in their thoughts um, and uh, their feedback on bills um, and to really try to be bipartisan. Two-thirds of the bills that I passed in the Colorado legislature had Republican votes um, on them. Um, I think that will uh, work well even if uh, I end end up in the minority and have to forge those relationships with um, the party in the majority. You
0: know, it's, feels as if the country is bitterly divided, and to hear you say that you create relationships with people from the other party is comforting. Is that difficult, those bonds?
1: Uh, Surprisingly not. I mean, I don't know if that's going to change in in Washington. But, Uh you know, as I I was sitting here waiting for the interview, I was texting with two of my Republican colleagues uh, in the state legislature. And so um, it's very much based on on the person. But we have some incredible people serving on both sides of the aisle here in Colorado. um, And I'm sure that I will find the same in Congress. Well, but
0: you said you weren't sure. I mean, it is a question mark whether Washington will feel like Denver in that case. What, What questions do you have about Washington? How well do you know that place?
1: Um, you know, uh, peripherally, really, um, I've done a lot of advocacy uh, with different groups uh, in Washington. And so I know it from the advocate side, uh-huh. um, including with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, I don't know it from like the inside um, uh, of Congress. But I think that anywhere that you go, you're sure to to find people, individuals who um, are have are serving for the right reasons. And those are the individuals that I'm hoping to find um, in the Republican and the Democratic Party.
0: Two years from now, that's the length of the term, two years from now, what issue do you want to have made the biggest difference in?
1: Healthcare. Uh, you know, that's really what um, got me into politics was all of the issues that I was seeing taking care of my patients. Um, that's the reason that I left my clinic to advocate for them on a, a different level. Uh, and so I really hope to have made some inroads on the pricing of healthcare, the accessibility to make sure that everybody has access to a doctor when they need one.
0: Shouldn't the Affordable Care Act have done that? Uh, in other words, do you want to build on the Affordable Care Act? Do you think that? Uh, The country needs a new system. Uh, What does that look like to you, brass tacks?
1: Uh, certainly, something to build on. I think that insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies still have way too much power um, over our ability to take care of ourselves. That's, uh, you know, what compelled me to run for for the for office was all of the conversations that I had to have with insurance companies, um, where it wasn't about my medical opinion; it was about their checklist and what they were will, willing to pay for. And so, um, that's what I hope to to work on is um, reducing the the calculation about money in healthcare and really having a focus on medicine.
0: It's an interesting thing to have an agenda for yourself and then know you're joining a giant body of hundreds of lawmakers. Um, You know, one way to make your voice heard is through committee assignments. Are there particular committees that you hope to have a voice on?
1: I'm hoping to be assigned to energy and commerce. Uh, Energy, the energy sector obviously is going to be very important uh, for me as the representative from the 8th District, uh, where we have a big oil and gas sector and where we can also um, really invest in renewable energy. Uh, And that committee also has uh, a lot to do with healthcare.
0: Any sense that they're going to put you on that committee or th- that's a conversation that we'll needs see to it. still have? A- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, as a state lawmaker, your name was on some big, thorny, controversial bills oil and gas reform, sex education, regulating high THC cannabis products. What lessons did you learn from those fights that you think you'll bring to Washington?
1: you know, it really reinforced the lessons that my dad taught me, that when you have a job, you do it to the best of your abilities. You jump in there. Um, And so I was not afraid of working hard and working on things that some people might uh, shy away from. So I will continue to do the same in Congress um, to get involved in uh, big issues because that's really what the people of Colorado and 8th District deserve.
0: And so what does that require? Like a, a fearlessness of... Not being popular, a fearlessness of not being reelected—like what? What do you sort of have to get past to get into that space?
1: Uh, you know, it's really just the conviction to, to do what is right and to follow um, the uh, the path that, that you set out for yourself in in even running uh, for office. And so, um, you know, not not getting embroiled in the politics and the the fear of, uh, of elections and reelections, um, but knowing that you were elected to do a job, and so. You know, just committing to doing it.
0: How do you resist or do you resist the power of industry, the power of business and the influence there? And of course, I I imagine you listen to business as well. But no doubt there were issues where you were being lobbied to take something, a position that was against your convictions.
1: Absolutely. And it's, you know, knowing that there's a lot of money in politics, um, whether it's in a campaign or in the um, uh, legislating itself. And so what I always tried to keep in in my mind was that there were a lot of people out there who cannot afford a lobbyist. Um, And so in my head, even if I needed to, I would counter whatever uh, the industry was saying with the people who didn't have somebody there to argue for them.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with... Congresswoman-elect Dr. Yadira Caraveo, who has won the race in Colorado's new Mm -hmm. eighth congressional district. Uh, Indeed, a close race. Talk for a moment to the Coloradans who didn't vote for you. Is there something you heard from their preferred candidate, uh, perhaps Barbara Kirkmeyer, that has influenced your thinking or understanding of the issues
1: you know, I think that she was um, speaking from a, a perspective of um people who I may not always um agree with on the base of um of issues, uh, but that are still passionate um, about what they believe. And so uh, what i um, will continue doing is listening um to to every constituent uh, in the eighth district um and trying to to tailor uh, any legislation that I'm part of um to benefit the district.
0: Is there an issue? where listening to your opponent and her supporters opened your eyes to something that you hadn't seen before?
1: Uh, No, I think that so many of those issues um, are, you know, discussions, hard discussions that I've had at the state legislature. Uh And so um, these are all perspectives um, that I've seen with um, incredible colleagues on both sides of the aisle. um, And uh, and so those are are conversations that I will continue. Uh,
0: So familiar to you as a sitting state lawmaker, I know you're considering where in the district to open an office or offices It's about an hour's drive from top to bottom. Um, What's your thinking about where you might place people?
1: Uh, You know, I would love to have a presence um, in uh, both both the north and the south parts of the district. I, you know, am going to orientation next week, and uh, and we'll figure out what the, you know logistics of of opening offices are, but I think it's very important, um, no matter where you are in the district, that you feel like you have um, easy access to us so that we can um, hear your your issues.
0: So something perhaps in those uh, northern suburbs in Adams County, something perhaps in Weld County, you're saying? that would be optimal. You told us, it was in September, that if you were elected to Congress, you wouldn't be able to keep your pediatric practice going, but that you would maintain your medical license and perhaps do some volunteer work. Uh, What have your conversations with patients sounded like, Dr. Caravelle?
1: Um, so I haven't been able to see many patients um, during uh, the campaign. Um, I definitely had one uh, evening where I uh, squeezed in a family of nine um, that loves seeing me um, in my clinic and didn't want to see anybody else. And so um, the conversations are hard. They, they understand that uh, that I'm leaving to advocate for them on a bigger um, uh, stage. Uh, but that those individual relationships and the kids that I've seen grow up sometimes from infancy, it's really hard to leave them behind.
0: Mm. Colorado's congressional delegation has some career politicians. I mean, Diana DeGette, Doug Lamborn, Ken Buck, they've been in office for uh, quite a while. Uh, Your district, I'll say, is far more competitive than theirs. But if you had your druthers, would you like to serve in Washington for a long time?
1: We will see. Right. With uh, with any job as you started, uh, you have a lot to learn and um, a lot to learn about your path. And so um, I know that whatever whatever the path I I take, it will always be serving people, uh, whether it's a, a doctor or a legislator.
0: What is one memento or picture you're going to be sure to bring to Washington?
1: Uh, you know, we had a, a press availability yesterday at, uh, at my parents' house, and there was an incredible picture um, at the that the Denver Post published of uh, me with my sister and my parents um, and us just uh, looking at each other with a lot of happiness and, um, and pride. And so I think that's definitely something that I will bring with me.
0: That'll be on the wall or a desk. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Congresswoman-elect Dr. Yadira Caraveo, Democrat, will represent Colorado's 8th Congressional District. That is the new districts because of population growth. A late leader of the Colorado House, Hugh McKean was honored at the state Capitol Thursday. He died last month after suffering a heart attack at his home in Loveland, he was 55. Friends and colleagues remembered McKean as a helper, including Speaker of the House Alec Garnett.
8: When I think of Hugh McKean in my mind's eye, I can see his huge smile and his arms outstretched, coming in for one of his famous bear hugs. Hugh McKean loved big. He loved everybody. He knew every issue that was happening in the Capitol. If there was a staff member who was having a problem at home, or was having a problem at work, Hugh was there to listen, to lean on, and to help solve that problem. His relationships ran deep. He loved my kids in a way that no one in this building did. He built a relationship with my family. When my kids would visit, he would always find a way to make their visits special, whether or not that was racing cars in his office or or giving uh, challenge coins or candy or just connecting with them on their level. Last night, my four year old daughter came home from school with a card she wanted me to give Hugh's family that said, We love Hugh. She's four. When my seven year old son learned of Hugh's passing, he took the challenge coin out of his collection of dozens of challenge coins. He knew exactly which one Hugh gave him, and he put it in his backpack, and it's been there for two weeks. Hugh built that connection with so many of us, but the fact that he forged those relationships with a seven-year-old and a four-year-old shows how well he understood people. He used to sneak into my office, and he would sit at my desk, and he would write notes, and he would leave me notes all the time. (laughs) He once once filled up my Nalgene with vodka. I, op- I called him and I said, listen, I mean, I could smell it the moment I opened it. And he goes, I think I owe you a water bottle, and I, I agreed. But his ability to understand people made him a talented public servant, a talented legislator. He knew how to cut the deal. He wasn't afraid to jump into the thorniest issues, and he would work with anyone. It didn't, re- didn't matter which party you were from, it didn't matter which side of the issue you represented, he would listen to you and he would work with you. He was a staunch Republican and proud of it. He reminded me of the Republicans I grew up with. He believed in small government. He believed that the private sector could solve problems faster than the state could and guns. He loved his guns. And it brings up a story that I was reminded of uh, after his passing, where in 2018, I was drafting a bill, a gun safety piece of legislation called the Red Flag Bill. And he called me up and he said, Alec, I wanna sit down with you. I wanna go through some of my thoughts and concerns with this piece of legislation. I said, that's fine, I'm at Ashton's soccer practice. Ashton was four at the time. And he said, just give me the address. So I sent him the address and he drove to the soccer practice. He sat with me on this grassy knoll uh, over Robin, looking over Robinson Park and we were watching the four year olds kind of just chase the soccer ball, talking deeply about the details of this legislation. He presented a few amendment ideas. He talked through alternative ways to go about it. We disagreed with each other. And at the end, he said, I fiercely disagree with you, and I'm gonna fight you on this issue, but I'm gonna do it respectfully. And I think this is a really important point to remember. He, debated that bill fiercely in the well. He represented his own views, he represented his constituents, he represented his party, but he did it the right way. He did it, what I would say, the old-fashioned way. In our society today, we've forgotten how to disagree with each other, but Hugh never did. He made sure that he was heard. He made sure that he dug into the legislation and pointed out the weak spots. But he didn't put our friendship, he didn't put the institution at risk because of that disagreement. He was a statesman. He also had a deep friendship with my wife, Emily. I remember on opening day, his first opening day session speech, giving uh, in those opening day speeches, he could have gotten into you know how, you know, he was gonna derail the Democrats' agenda, how he was gonna accomplish his goals at against all odds. But literally the first thing that he did standing at that podium was look up at the balcony and point to my wife, Emily, and say that he loved her. That was Hugh. He always told people how much he cared about them. He never let a day go by where he didn't say that he loved you. Hugh loved being a dad. Hugh loved Amy. He loved the process of building his house. He would tell you all about it. He almost convinced me to go out and, like, hammer nails with him. (laughs) He loved being a legislator. He loved being a good friend. He loved all the staff in this building. And he loved being part of something greater than him. He really is an example for us all, and I hope his legacy lives on forever. He will be missed.
0: That is Democratic Speaker of the Colorado House, Alec Garnett, remembering his friend, the late Republican House Minority Leader, Hugh McKean, during a service Thursday at the state Capitol. McKean died of a heart attack last month at 55. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with what it was like to be some of the first soldiers on skis I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC.
1: Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of
4: Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. For Veterans Day, we'll take some time to recognize the skiing soldiers of World War II. Members of the 10th Mountain Division trained at Camp Hale in Leadville. Last month, President Biden declared it a national monument.
9: And I'm honored.
0: I'm honored to sign this proclamation to preserve a special part of our military history. These troops fought to take Mount Belvedere in Italy's Apennine Mountains, and their victory was a turning point in the war. Producer Joe Richman of Radio Diaries brings us their story.
6: My name is Robert J. Nordhaus. I'm 95 years old. I served in the 10th Mountain Division from the time it was organized in 1942.
9: My name is Nuke Elbridge. I
6: was
2: in L Company.
6: My name is Al Waverick. I was in Company K, 15th infantry.
2: My name is Dick Wilson and I served with M Company, the 85th Regiment of the 10th Mountain Division.
10: My name is Dan Kennerly. I was born in Georgia September 21st, 1922. I was one of the few people in the 10th that never learned to ski.
11: <laughs> like daddy used
6: to do. The 10th really got started in 1940, I believe it was. The U.S. Army decided they were going to form a mountain unit. And
5: the reason was our infantry just weren't ready in terms of equipment or clothing or anything for winter warfare. If we had to go into Norway or Finland, or if we had to fight in the Alps,
2: we'd have to know something about how to fight in the mountains. I heard about the 10th Mountain Division being formed. At that time, it was called just the ski troops. And I knew that I was going to be drafted sometime, and I didn't want to go into some outfit that didn't appeal to me. And, of course, being a skier, that was a very glamorous idea.
10: I went and talked to our personnel man. Paratroops was filled up. So just out of the clear blue sky, I just said, how about the ski troops? Seven days later, I was on my way to Camp Hale, Colorado.
6: It starts with a bugle of blowing, Reveille over your bed when you arrive. Hey, Jack, that's jive.
10: Camp Hale, it was in the Pando Valley. It's just across the Continental Divide on the west side. And we got there, and I got off the train, and I saw this big white snow bank, seven feet high, and I thought to myself, "What have I got my tail into?"
2: Me, being a boy from the flatlands of Monroe County, New York, to get up there and see that type of mountains—I just didn't know they existed. Just, just amazing.
5: So when we got to Camp Hale, they issued us wool ski pants, two kinds of parkas, wool socks, gloves with trigger fingers, and after a while you learned
2: how to use them. Oh, I was excited by the equipment, the lovely white skis and the finest bindings I'd ever seen. I couldn't wait.
11: F Company reporting for ski instruction, sir. Very good,
2: Sergeant. At ease. You men are here
11: to learn military skiing. Some of you have skied as civilians and followed certain standard techniques. You will find that the Army has added to the best of these techniques to create better ones of its own. That's all, good luck, and good skiing. Left,
6: pace. It was a little more hazardous because you had a 40 to 50 pound pack <laughs> and coming down with a big pack and then you had these uh, bindings that didn't come off, bear trap bindings. You had to know how to fall or or you'd break a leg.
9: And here they come, shooting down the long white slope like a string of comets. Watch them do that first fast turn, still keeping formation as they change direction. Yes, those long weeks of training are showing amazing results.
2: It was very rugged training. We lived in the mountains for weeks working at altitudes of up to 13,500 feet. It was out
10: in five, six feet of snow, and the night temperature would get down around 20 degrees below zero. But you had to learn to do the right things because you couldn't put a boy out in that below zero weather all the time unless he knew what he was doing. he's doing.
5: He'd be dead. We had a lot of older guys with us who knew the score, knew what to do. We had old mountain men, and if you listen to them... Did what they told you to do. Well, you didn't get frostbite. The old-timers said, rub bacon grease all over your face, ears, noses, fingers.
2: It will really help with frostbite, and it did. We'd actually dig snow caves, and then with candles, just candles alone, it would ice up the inside of the cave, and pretty soon it was warm as you could be just because the heat from your body and so forth, and the candles. You could strip right down to your shirt and shorts and be very comfortable in a snow cave.
10: And then I learned something very quickly, is you never drink any liquid after, say, 4 o'clock. Because the worst thing in the world is getting out of a nice, warm sleeping bag, 20 degrees below zero, to have your call of nature.
5: It was cold all the time. It was snowy all the time, and you know, hunger. (laughs) But it also was overall satisfying because we knew after we did it a while we were getting in better and better shape. We were getting stronger and stronger. Our division was probably originally designed to fight in Norway, but the Germans got there first. Then the next real mountain fighting that was going to take place
2: was in the Apennines in Italy. It was Christmas Day or something like that. They boarded us on the ship and said, OK, you guys are headed for Italy. We were finally in a combat zone. We hoped, in many ways, just to prove ourselves, which I think eventually we did.
11: In the closing months of 1944... Forward units of the American 5th Army were faced with the task of breaking through these ridges of the German Gothic defense line.
9: After the fall of Rome, the German army retreated to the northern Apennine Mountains. There was the Gothic line, and then there was the Winter line, and that's where the Germans made their stand.
6: Mount Belvedere was the highest mountain there. And U.S. troops had been stymied there for about six months.
2: You have to realize that the Germans had literally years to prepare, number one, their defenses. And, I mean, they had fantastic defense systems set up in these mountains. And they did this because this was really the last bastion. As long as they control those strategic points, nobody was going to get on through Italy. Men who
5: haven't been trained in the mountains look at a mountain and they think it's too much of an obstacle for them. And our guys just said, we know we can do it. So our commanding officer, General Hayes, he planned a nighttime assault on Riva Ridge on the 18th of February, 1945.
11: Here was the situation at the front as
5: General Hayes saw it from his command
11: post. On my left is Riva Ridge and was essential to capture Reva Ridge to prevent them from looking down on our flank and rear.
10: Reva Ridge was a vertical granite on the south face of it. So you can stand on top and you can see miles and miles and miles out there. You can see everything that moves.
5: At that time, the mountain was covered with snow, ice, very steep, very, very difficult conditions. And so... At night, the Germans went to bed. They didn't even keep guard patrols going up there because they didn't believe that any American unit could climb that ridge night or day and drive them off of the ridgetop. Well, they were wrong.
11: Expert rock climbers
5: began climbing the
11: ridge's jagged rocks and, without making a sound, fixed ropes for
2: the use of units that were moving up from below. They even pounded pitons in and they had their piton hammers wrapped in cloth so the Germans wouldn't hear them pounding in the pitons at night. These men were climbing with heavy packs,
9: full ammunition.
6: They got to the top of the rock wall it was just about daylight and they got into a pretty vicious fire fight up there the Germans counterattacked, but uh, they held them off and they captured that rock wall.
11: At dawn, a single platoon of Company A reported that it had occupied the northern end of the ridge. The 10th Mountain Division, still considered green, had chopped the key threat out of the Gothic line.
9: It was an incredible operation. So it was the next night that we attacked Belvedere. That was a different different cup of tea. There weren't that many casualties on River Ridge, but on Belvedere, there were a lot of casualties.
10: Well, I've always thought that uh, anything as important as a war, that you ought to keep a record of it, of what you did. I decided that I was going to keep a diary of it. I tried to be as accurate as I could. Monday, February the 19th, 1945. We assemble for the attack. The moon is just rising above Mount Belvedere. No one talks. I guess everyone is alone with his own thoughts. The order to move out is whispered around, and we begin to file up towards the line of departure. Our success depends on the element of surprise, Sergeant Polschman repeats. All weapons will be unloaded. No weapons will be fired until after daylight when the order is given. That was a smart move because they didn't know where we were.
5: Keep in mind, it was laced with barbed wire, mines. The Germans were dug in. It was terrifying and difficult, but you kept on going because the guys next to you kept on going.
2: I think I remember more than anything else was when the Germans started the phosphorus flares. Even though it was night, the whole countryside was just uh, bathed in the, it's a very eerie light, kind of frightening.
10: The ground is becoming steeper and more difficult to climb. The first rays of the sun bathe the snow with a yellow glow. It's momentarily quiet. After several minutes, an American machine gun opens fire. Everyone rises and starts running toward the saddle. All hell breaks loose. Men are yelling and screaming. Shells seem to be falling everywhere. A German machine gun fire opens up. The bullets kick up dirt around us and make a loud popping noise as they split the air nearby. The two men I'm following go down. They yell for a medic. I pause to help but remember the general's words
2: to keep moving. We were fairly close to the summit when I got wounded. I was hit by, I think it was mortar fire, but I'm not sure, German mortar fire. And uh, right away I knew I'd been hit. In fact, I could see the two bones in my wrist sticking up in the flares.
11: As the 87th swung to the northeast to firm up the Belvedere line, evidence of the cost of that action began to show.
10: The sound of battle begins to die down. We have taken the saddle, but there's not much left of C Company. I hear they have lost their captain and over half of their men
2: in the assault. Belvedere was a bloody battle for the 10th Mountain Division, particularly, the, of course, the 85th, which really took the steep side.
6: I think there were about three or 400 killed at Belvedere alone. Yeah.
10: 6 p.m., the light is fading fast. I think of the friends I lost today. This morning they were alive. I stare up the endless sky and mutter, Thank you, Lord, and fade into sleep.
2: Belvedere was a tough, tough mountain
5: to get. It was a stalemate until we made that breakthrough. Once we made the breakthrough, the German army collapsed and our division just kept going all the way to the Alps.
11: Headlines bring the people of the United Nations the most sensational news of the war, the surrender of Italy. In New York, Americans of Italian descent are first to celebrate. Vino for victory.
0: An excerpt of The Ski Troops of World War II from Radio Diaries with creator and host Joe Richman. We first shared that in 2019. Follow Radio Diaries wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
12: There is a mountain in the distant west that, sun-defying, in its deep ravines, displays a cross of snow upon its side. Those lines come from a sonnet by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow a tribute to his late wife, partly inspired by a Colorado 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, near Minturn, A favorite peak of painters, photographers, and inspiration seekers, Mount of the Holy Cross is named for a cross-shaped snowfield on its northeast face. But it is not as sun-defying as Longfellow implied. A Colorado summer eventually does melt the snow down a steep, narrow rut into a sapphire-colored lake. It's called the Bowl of Tears, another poetically inspired feature of the landscape, as hiking straight up Mount of the Holy Cross can be arduous. Before the snow melts, bring a helmet, ice axe, crampons, and plenty of rope. After the snow melts, climbing is not recommended. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado
0: Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival is back, created by women to showcase the work of women who make movies. Linda Broker heads the event and spoke with my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield.
7: The Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival. This is a really exciting year celebrating the 35th anniversary.
3: It is indeed And we're not only excited to be celebrating our 35th anniversary, but we are also excited to be celebrating the fact that we are fully back in our usual location at Colorado College, offering films at four different venues and just starting to feel like we're back in action since our hiatus after 2019.
7: What's interesting about your festival is you have an in-person festival at Colorado College, November 11th through 13th. But then you also offer a virtual encore, November 17th through 20th, so people can enjoy these films
3: at home. Yes. And it's, you know, I would say that's one of the positives that came out of COVID um, in 2020 when everything was shut down. Everyone, including uh, film festivals, were faced with figuring out how to continue on when we weren't able to do what we normally do in person. So in 2020, we hosted a fully virtual film festival, which was really well received, um, especially given the circumstances. But we continued it last year as well, realizing that it offered a lot more accessibility to the films and eliminates the challenge of trying to see everything in one weekend.
7: Yeah, I do think that a lot of us are uh, excited about watching, you know, being able to access things in our pajamas. I think that's kind of another thing that came
6: out of COVID.
7: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So this is the longest running women's film festival in North America. And uh, as your website says, three decades of discovery, exploration, experiencing, and celebrating the drive, spirit, and diversity of women. So what should we expect this year?
3: We really pride ourselves on offering a very diverse selection of films. We focus primarily on documentaries. So our feature films are all documentaries with one exception. We also have a smattering of short films also sprinkled throughout the festival, which are both narrative and documentary. But I always feel like if someone were to come to the festival and watch You know, five or eight films, they will have touched many of the corners of the world that they might not otherwise know anything about.
7: I also read that this event started with two women who wanted to offer the community a new lens on the world, the female lens. So I understand that there are two Colorado centric films that are being screened this year. Can you tell us about those?
3: Yeah, we've got one film, it's a short film called Fight or Flight. And the subject of the film is a female pilot, and I believe she was the first female pilot to work for the Colorado Department of Wildlife. Yes. And the other film is called Being Michelle, and the filmmaker, Mae Thornton Mayra, actually grew up here in Colorado.
7: And it's always cool to learn kind of a backstory about, like, the state that you're in or the your immediate community. And it sounds like these these films uh, either have a storyline focused on Colorado or it is created by someone, you know, born and bred, so to speak, in Colorado. So pretty exciting.
3: Yeah. And there's actually two other films that are somewhat Colorado centric. Um, film professor from Colorado College. We're hmm. featuring her film, uh, Mississippi Messiah. And hmm. then a Colorado College grad is going to be attending with her film Battlefield.
7: Wow so lots of lots of stories so you have four options if you really want to look at the Colorado angle but then there's tons of other films with uh, just kind of women-centric stories.
3: That is correct.
7: So it is the first year back after COVID and having an in-person film festival why should people come out to the Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival this year?
3: Well, it's funny, you referenced earlier, you know, the joy of watching films in your pajamas, which I will not argue with. Um, (laughs) However, we are big believers that when you watch films in a community of other people, it completely amplifies the experience. The dynamic that happens just in a dark theater of people sitting quietly is really interesting. But the conversations that happen afterwards when you're discussing what you just watched, are really what make a festival special. And of course, the conversations with the filmmakers as well. Thank you so
7: much, Linda. Thank you.
0: Linda is Linda Broker, executive director of the 35th annual Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival, speaking with my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The event runs through Sunday at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. And finally today, Red Rocks wraps up its concert season this weekend after its busiest schedule since the pandemic shutdowns. We'll leave you with music from one of this year's headliners, Austin, Texas-based singer-songwriter, Shaky Graves. Before his September show, he performed for our colleagues at Indie 1023 in his dressing room. Going to play a song called Ready or Not. And last year, after we played Red Rocks, It was basically,
8: hadn't played any shows for like, what, almost two years? And then we had five shows with an entirely new band and then we played Red Rocks and it was just like one of the most intense experiences (laughs) ever. And so afterwards it was like, okay, let's do a little decompression. I went over to my buddy over here, who you can't see in Radio Land, just make a noise. Yeah. That's Cameron Neal and Cam's family has a, uh, a cabin outside of Creed, Colorado and we ended up writing this song
0: Up in the Mountains. Ready
9: or not
6: Here
1: comes a weekend
6: Hanging around, talking a lot Lord knows I don't need a reason To tell myself
9: I'll be alright Let's hope that it's true.
6: I'm already out for the night. Why not make
0: it two?
6: My God,
1: ready or not. Ooh, here comes the wedding.
6: Well, you wear the white
7: Say, why not? I'm so excited for you. What are we forgetting?
6: To tell ourselves we'll be alright. Let's
9: hope that it's true. You're already one of a kind. Why not make it?
0: Ready or not, backstage at Red Rocks with Shaky Graves and featuring his tour mate, Sierra Farrell. Thanks to our colleagues at Indie 1023. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to the Colorado Matters team
12: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
7: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
12: Matt Hers,
0: Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano.
7: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC. <laughs>